0: Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be sharing here with you again this morning. If I haven't met you, my name's Marshall. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, Whether you're joining us uh, here or online, welcome uh, this morning. Well, Jane worked so hard to get it, and now her dream had come true. She got the job that she'd been hoping desperately for. As head of the team, she was almost her own boss now and how nice it will be to have more money than she's ever had in her life. As she lay in bed thinking back over the interview and the things the HR director said about her, it was quite intoxicating. They needed her. She was uniquely gifted. She had a great future. And as she let herself dream about the future, she became aware of voices in her head. And to be honest, she was troubled and shocked by what they were saying. Jane's desire to make a difference for God was still there to be salt and light in a very secular workplace. But at the same time, she was taken aback by these other voices. Jane, now you can make some serious money. Think about how others will look up to you and Jane, you've got your foot in the door now. Imagine where this might lead you. You'll have real power and influence. You'll be the one calling the shots. Well, before she knew it, Jane realised that these voices were louder than her desire to, uh, to be in this job to serve God. The temptations were so powerful, so alluring, that she didn't know how to stop them. Her calling to be all who God wanted her to be was being sabotaged by these desires to serve herself. Well, this story about Jane is made up and Jane isn't a real person. Um, But these experiences are pretty common. Uh, You may not have faced exactly what Jane faced, but we all face something. uh, uh, We can all relate to something in Jane's story And something we've all experienced is temptation, isn't it? Temptation to shortcut God's long, narrow road to serve him, to be a light and instead to give in to temptation to take the easy road of serving ourselves. Temptation is something that's always there, always whispering in our ear. And today's passage in Matthew 4 is about how our king faced the most severe temptation and how he dealt with it and overcame it by wielding the word of God as his weapon. And he gives us the best possible example, model of how we can also fight and overcome temptation. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, we thank you for this story of Jesus in the wilderness, thank you for how Jesus dealt with temptation and he overcame the devil. Father, we pray that as we hear Jesus' words uh, and his example, that we might be encouraged uh, and strengthened and emboldened to follow his example uh, and to stand up against temptation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Matthew starts off the story of Jesus' temptation by making it clear that this was God's doing, leading Jesus into the wilderness. Verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit. This is God's Spirit who took him there into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, God doesn't tempt us to, to evil, to sin. And the answer is no, he does not. But the word for temptation can also be translated testing and I think that's actually more the sense of the word here. That's really what's going on here. Jesus, God wants to test Jesus and he allows the devil to be his instrument to do that. So Jesus is taken into the wilderness. He goes without food 40 days and 40 nights and then the devil comes to him and begins the first two temptations by saying, if you are the Son of God, and that's our first point. If you are the Son of God. Now remember, if you were here last week from chapter 3, that Jesus has been baptised by John. And as he comes out of the water, the heavens are open, and the Spirit of God comes down upon him, and, says to, and the voice to heaven says to him, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. As we saw last week, this is a massive statement about the uniqueness of Jesus, about his identity. He is God's son, the Messiah, God's king who has his spirit and who is coming to judge and to rule the world. So hot on the heels of that magic moment, the devil comes whispering in Jesus' ear, if you are the Son of God. But actually, 40 long days have passed, haven't they, between these events. 40 days in the searing heat of the desert where Jesus has nothing to eat. Now, I don't know about your experience of fasting, maybe you're good at at doing that. I am the world's worst faster, let me tell you. I barely survived the 40-hour famine um, back in the day. I would spend those 40 hours drooling over visions of hot chips and dreaming about how much I would eat when I finally finish the famine. And even then I cheated by sucking on butter menthols to get me through. But Jesus goes 40 days without eating a crumb. Now as we hear where Jesus went, the wilderness and how long he was there, 40 days, Matthew is wanting to join the dots with another huge wilderness experience that you may think of in Israel's history. Israel in the wilderness led by Moses as they came out of of Egypt. And they were there not for 40 days, but for 40 years. And that also was a time of testing for God's people. So what Jesus is doing here, in a sense, is reliving Israel's journey. And we'll come back to the significance of that shortly. So after 40 days, Jesus is half dead with hunger and weakness. The devil says to him, if you are the son of God, it's a temptation for Jesus to cash in on his privilege, to use his platinum Messiah's credit card to meet his needs. If you are the son of God, that can be taken in two ways. It can mean since you are the Son of God, because you are the Son of God and have this unique relationship with the Father, then you need to take advantage of it. Or the devil might be wanting Jesus to actually question what God had said about him, to sow seeds of doubt in Jesus' mind. Are you really the Son of God? If you are, why are you standing here with nothing to eat and about to expire? Surely God wouldn't want that for you. And I think as we hear those words, we're meant to cast our minds back to another temptation. Not in the wilderness this time, but in a garden. Way back in Genesis, when the serpent said to Eve, did God really say not to eat this fruit? If you are the Son of God, show me and show the world that you really are the Messiah. Well, there are three temptations that the devil uses against Jesus. Let's look at them one by one. Firstly, baker's delight from rocks. After 40 days without food, the devil tells Jesus, If you are the Son of God, verse 4, tell these stones to become bread. That must have been the most extreme temptation for Jesus. What could be the harm of having a little snack to satisfy what his body is crying out for? How does Jesus answer? Jesus answers in verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now you'll notice for each of these temptations, the way that Jesus combats the temptation is to quote scripture. And each time it's from the book of Deuteronomy, which has a significance that we'll come back to again shortly. But here Jesus uses this quote to say that it's not by bread, not bread that he lives for, but it's the word of God. He refuses to satisfy his stomach over living for his calling. And that calling is submitting to God, following the path set out for him. You see, it wasn't just a matter of seeing how much willpower Jesus has. Can I hold out against the devil? The temptation was to put his desire for physical satisfaction and pain avoidance ahead of God's plan for him. To shortcut God's calling that involves suffering before he put on his crown as king. Pain, humiliation and death were the path for Jesus' calling and the path to glory. The devil was telling him, look, you are the king. Use your power to serve yourself. I made the point at the beginning that the way that Jesus handled these temptations are an example, a model for us. Now, of course, we don't face these same temptations as Jesus or not in the same way. But like Jesus, we also have a calling to live a life of service as a light to the world. And we all face the temptations of taking shortcuts, don't we? of settling for self-interest over serving, of selling out to ambition over calling. Jesus shows us how we can follow his example in the wilderness. The devil tempted Jesus to take a shortcut to pain avoidance, to produce bread and satisfy his cravings. And we are constantly tempted to escape difficulty and suffering, aren't we? It might be physical, it might be stress, it could be, uh, it could be a whole range of things, but it's also pain avoidance. We live in a culture that's risk averse and that's because we do everything we can to avoid hardship and pain. Why persevere in a job that's not fulfilling? The voices in our head are constantly whispering, you deserve to be happy. I need to take a path where I can be true to myself and that's self-fulfilling. Everything we've fed in our culture drives home the message that I deserve to live the life that I want to live and I don't need to put up with pain. And I think this flows over to our life as Christians as well. Now we usually go into serving in a particular area with good motives, we genuinely want to serve God but as soon as things become hard or you're not appreciated or it's just too big a push to keep going we can easily give up because we're so used to avoiding pain rather than pushing through With what God wants us to do. One significant area uh, that I just want to address briefly that affects a number of us is broken relationships. Uh, We have a falling out with someone, uh, perhaps in church, perhaps outside. It becomes awkward and difficult to be around that person. Instead of going through the hard yards of seeking reconciliation, it seems easier to go down the route of pain avoidance by just keeping out of their way, sweeping it under the carpet. But you know, in the long run, we're the ones missing out by settling for meagre relationships over finding the richness of forgiveness and reconciliation. We shortchange ourselves When we cheat on God's calling for us, we fall short of who we meant to be. But Jesus refused to resort to pain avoidance. Instead, he uses God's word to remind himself and Satan that God's words and God's calling are more important than any short-term relief. Jesus didn't forget his calling as the Son of God. Well, the devil is undeterred by his first failure, so he tries again. Uh, And so our third point is the next temptation, where Jesus is taken by Satan to the roof of the temple and tries to lure him into a leap of glory. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, again, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. The temptation here is to show that you are the Messiah, to show your power to protect yourself or at least for God to protect him a dramatic demonstration of how God will protect him. This is no small jump. From the top of the temple roof to the valley below, I'm told it's about 130 metres. Try jumping 130 metres and see how you come out the other end. If Jesus did that and God came through for him, it would be a spectacular proof of Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And the devil backs it up with a Bible quote of his own. He's seen Jesus do it, so now he's trying to beat Jesus at his own game. He quotes from Psalm 91. The angels will catch you and protect you. The trouble is, that's not what Psalm 91 means at all. It's not talking about doing stupid things and watch God come to your rescue. Psalm 91, we haven't got time to look at it, but it's a word of assurance that if we dwell in God's shelter, he will protect us and an, assurance, uh, yeah, and an assurance of his protection. Satan is pulling a classic move that has been the bread and butter of cults and heretics through the ages. He plucks a verse out of context, context and makes it say what he wants it to say. But Jesus isn't fooled. He responds back with a Bible verse of his own, again from Deuteronomy verse 7. It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus knew that he was the one being tested in the wilderness, it was not his place to test the Father. If he threw himself down, he would be pushing God, forcing God's hand to act. Instead, Jesus knew that his role was to submit to the Father's will, not to twist his arm to make him prove that he is the Messiah. So Satan is foiled a second time. He knows now that the tactic of tempting Jesus to use his privilege as the Son of God isn't going to work. Jesus is standing firm. He isn't going to be tempted to take a shortcut to glory, proving that he is the Messiah. Jesus stands firm, knowing that his calling is to walk a road of suffering before he gets to glory. But still, Satan isn't giving up. As a last desperate resort, he resorts to another tactic. He tries naked bribery. And so our fourth point is he tempts Jesus by offering him to be king of the world at a price. Have a look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. All you've got to do is make make me your God and it's all yours. It's a desperate move and it fails miserably because yet again Jesus fights the devil from scripture. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now we know that Satan was clutching at straws with this third temptation because Jesus knew that the kingdoms of this world were going to be his anyway. Just not now. The road to inheriting the nations was going to be through suffering and the cross. Jesus knew that he could not escape that. Each of the three temptations was an offer to shortcut that journey of suffering. Through avoidance of physical pain, through revealing his glory, not through the cross but by a spectacular uh, act of throwing himself off the temple. But at each point Jesus was steadfast in submitting to the Father's plan. He knew that taking a shortcut would be selling out on his calling. And so Jesus wins the battle. Satan disappears, thoroughly defeated, just with the word of God. Now I said a bit earlier that I'd revisit um, the significance of what scripture Jesus chooses to fight Satan with, the book of Deuteronomy. And that is tied with the significance of um, Jesus going into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, so remember we saw earlier that the wilderness temptations connect us with the Israelites' original journey uh, through the wilderness for 40 years. They too were tempted while they, while they were there, as we saw. But the difference between Israel and Jesus is that Israel failed the test. That's why they were there for 40 years. And the three temptations of Jesus line up with three key ways that the Israelites were tempted and failed as well. Firstly, the bread from rocks. The the Israelites sinned when they complained about having no food. They failed to trust God to provide for them. Secondly, putting God to the test on the temple roof. The verse that Jesus quotes, Deuteronomy 6.16, says you shall not put your God to the test as you did at Massah. Massah is the place where the Israelites whinged. You, you may remember the story of, of Moses hitting the rock to get water out of it because the Israelites had whinged about having nothing to drink. They put the God to the test. And then the third temptation to worship the devil is basically the temptation of idolatry, worshipping an idol or a false god. And of course, that's exactly what the Israelites did when they worshipped the golden calf, isn't it? So Jesus' journey of temptation is a retracing of the original journey of the Israelites. But where Israel failed... Jesus repeatedly stood firm. He did what Israel failed to do. And why does he quote from Deuteronomy to fight the devil? Well, Deuteronomy means second law. And it was the second time that Moses gave the people the law uh, that was given to him from God uh, to a second generation. The first time they heard it uh, was on Mount Sinai after they came out of Egypt. And they failed spectacularly in keeping that law. So Moses gives the law a second time to a new generation. It's a new beginning. And so Jesus quotes as, when Jesus quotes from the second law, he is showing that he is retracing Israel's steps in a new beginning. And Jesus would succeed where Israel had failed. He fulfills the calling of the faithful people of God that Israel were meant to. And how does Jesus succeed when Israel failed? By using the word of God as his weapon. It's not like some magical talisman by by like an incantation by saying the words that's the power's not in that. Quoting a verse in itself doesn't somehow mysteriously make Satan disappear. Using scripture worked for Jesus because he believed it and he lived it. It strengthened him to believe God's promises. It gave him the courage to resist taking shortcuts. It was the bedrock that Jesus relied on in following his calling as the Son of God. Jesus' victory over Satan in the wilderness is good news for us too, friends. It shows us two things. One, that Satan can be defeated by using the word of God. Secondly, it assures us that in God's strength, we too can defeat temptation. Because we too have the same Holy Spirit that Jesus has. His wisdom and power is available to us. God promises us that we too can stand up under temptation. Have a look at a verse from 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And the way that we fight temptation is to follow our king, to use scripture as a, as a weapon. And I want to finish off by suggesting three keys to the way that we can do that. And the first one is that we need to know the word. We need to know the word and we need to know it in such a way that we can use it. Now, I really take my hat off to people who um, are disciplined at memorising significant parts of scripture. That's a fantastic way of having key truths of the Bible available at your fingertips. But I acknowledge that many of us aren't there, Uh, I'm not there. I'm actually pretty hopeless at Scripture memorization. But if that's beyond us, there are still ways that we can make Scripture available to us when we need it by knowing pretty well certain key books of the Bible, such as the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians. Um, For example, if you know the book of Ephesians pretty well, You may not have a memory verse from it, but you will know that uh, chapter 1 deals significantly with God's election of us, that we are chosen by God since the beginning of the creation of the world. Or that chapter 2 is about salvation by grace, not works, etc. It's really helpful knowing God's word in such a way so you can pull a verse or a chapter from this or that book as you need it. So first point is know the word. Second point is knowing the Bible is just a first step, but more crucially, we have to live it. We have to live it. Now I know you know this. This is Christianity 101, hey. But we all need to be reminded of it and encouraged to move what we know to be true, from the head to the heart. Knowing that I have been chosen by God from the beginning of the world, that has to mean enough to me to make a difference in the way that I live. And then thirdly, the word of God can only be useful as a weapon if we know how to use it. And this point is related to the last point. If all the Bible is to us is a series of inspirational quotes on our fridge magnets or stuff we learn about God at CG or even Sunday at church, but it makes no difference to you from Monday to Friday. It makes no difference to you at work or it doesn't impact the way that you relate to your family and it has no bearing on the way that you deal with a crisis when it comes up then it will be useless to you when temptation comes. It just won't be there for you. To use scripture as a sword, we have to practice wielding it in everyday life. But friends, we should be confident. We can be confident that we can stand up under temptation by using the word of God. It was good enough for Jesus, God's own son, relied not on his own strength, but the word of God. He didn't rely on his wisdom, but he fully relied on the Father through his word. And in doing that, he faithfully lived out his calling that God had given him. And friends, God has given us a calling as well, a high calling to be a light to the world to take the long, hard road and resist shortcuts to pain pain avoidance. And when we do that, we become the people that God created us to be, the people who Jesus saved us to be. Instead of selling out to ambition and money and selfishness, we live a life of service and love. And then, friends, we become truly human. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that your Son Jesus, the Messiah, showed us what it means to live with a calling. He showed us what it means to be truly human. It's not by taking shortcuts to uh, self indulgence and pain avoidance, ambition, serving ourselves, but it's about serving you and and through that serving others. Father, we ask that we would seek to live out that calling and to do that by the word of God, that we would have the power and the strength to resist temptation by living by your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.